This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 113. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, I want to start off by uh, continuing to send the positive vibes your way, wishing you, your family, colleagues, friends, uh, that everyone is safe and sound. Uh, my family and I are hunkered down, uh, really cooking up a storm, partaking in uh, in-home workouts, and, and really doing our part with the hopes that uh, the coronavirus goes away soon. And uh, I urge, again, everybody to uh, please follow your uh, all the health and safety guidelines and uh, so we can get past this as soon as possible. Um, so uh, I also actually wanted to announce that we'll be transitioning the Planet Microcap Showcase, uh, which takes place April 21st, 23rd, 2020, to a virtual conference. You know, look, when you can't meet face-to-face, you, you go virtual. And, uh, and thanks to our friends at Issuer Direct, uh, you will now get the full Planet Microcap Showcase experience from the comfort of your own home. Uh, issuers will be making presentations. Attendees will get to book one-on-one meetings with our presenting companies, and you'll get to learn from some of the brightest minds in the business during our microcap investing workshop. Registration is now open. Investors can register for free, where you'll get to watch and listen to all the company presentations and the microcap investing workshop panels, as well as book one-on-one meetings with companies. To register, go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and click register now. I hope you can join us this year and uh, please feel free to email me if you have any questions at rcraft at snnwire.com. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Dan Rasmussen, founder and CIO of Verdad Advisors. Prior to Verdad, Dan worked at Bain Capital and Bridgewater Associates, and he also holds an AB from Harvard College and an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business. In 2017, he was named to Forbes 30 under 30 list as well. And really, he's one of the leading thinkers in the investing world, and I'm really excited that he was able to join me on here. We recorded this interview in what seems like years ago, but uh, it's actually only been a month on uh, February 25th, 2020. Uh, this episode is a good old-fashioned chat about our mutual love of microcap stocks, as well as Dan's strategies for success. At the very end, we do spend a little bit of time discussing crisis investing as well. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 113 of the Planet Microcap Podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Dan Rasmussen. This is Robert Kraft, and I am your host on the Planet Microcap Podcast, and with me today, my guest is a familiar face that you've probably seen on uh, some of your favorite investing podcasts, or well, heard, excuse me, on some of your favorite investing podcasts out there, uh, Mr. Dan Rasmussen. He is the founder and CIO of Verdad Advisors. Dan, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. How you doing? Thank you for having me on. 
It's great to have you on, man. I, I really do appreciate you taking the time and uh, to share your thoughts today. On anytime anyone wants to talk micro caps, I'm in. I'm psyched, so it's great to be here. I was going to say this is a subject so near and dear to your heart. So uh, let's let's give the people what they want. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, to start off, as I do with all my guests, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and really your your motivations to to be where you're at today. So, you know, uh, let's start there. Let's start with your background. Yeah, uh, so I grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, father's a lawyer. Uh, I, I uh, studied uh, history and literature in college and sort of by random chance uh, got uh, got an internship at Bridgewater Associates my junior summer of college. Uh, and that really was what sparked my interest in investing. I <clears throat> was so fascinated by Ray Dalio's approach and the principles and uh, everything about it. Uh, and I got really intrigued with trying to learn as much as I could. And I think as a, an outsider, what I perceived to be an outsider, didn't study economics. I wasn't an accounting major. Um, I was a histon lit guy. I said, gee, I'm going to go out there and read all these books about investing. I'm going to go read, you know, Kahneman and Tversky, a random walk down Wall Street. I'm going to read, you know, you name it, Peter Lynch's book. You know, I'm going to go try to read all this stuff. Um, and I found actually when I started my job at, at Bain Capital, um, which is where I went after college, I found that a lot of people in investing hadn't read these books, that I actually had somewhat of an advantage by being sort of a self-perceived outsider and going through and you know reading Damon Duran's valuation book from start to finish, because I was like, everybody else knows all this stuff. So I should probably like, I'm so far behind, I'm going to read this damn thing so I can figure out a new valuation. And then I realized that a lot of people hadn't hadn't really been exposed to the more uh, intellectual side of finance. Um, and, and sort of the son of a lawyer, I think I was very attracted to uh, a more rules, and, and, and I think having my first introduction to investing at Bridgewater, a very interesting rules-based approach to investing. Say, so, okay, rather than having discretion and just saying, okay, I'm a genius, I'm going to go figure out what to buy, you know, coronavirus, is it a big or bad or oh, good or fine? And, you know, I'm a super genius sitting here in my office in Boston, know more about the world than anybody else, so I'm going to make a bet because I'm a genius. Uh, that didn't ap 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 appeal to me. I, I wanted to think of what's a template or a set of rules or a way to understand the economic world that's going to guide my decisions uh, and have my bets be a manifestation or a bet on that worldview um, rather than a bet on me, Dan Rasmussen, being you know the most uh, brilliant prognosticator of market conditions ever. So what, what's interesting to me, you know, you said you're a lit major and you know you're dealing with very much the esoteric. And yet here you are saying, you know, I wanted to come up with a rules-based system, almost a very mathematical pattern approach. So, I mean, did you, did you, did your mindset evolve to that point? Or do you, would you say you always kind of had that pattern-like approach to understanding even, even, you know, esoteric ideas? No, I, th I think it, it had always been part of my uh, worldview um, that I think, um, and I think part of it is maybe for almost a it is for a religious orientation, right? I think you know I'm a religious person. Um, you know why do we have laws? Why, why do we have uh, rules that you're supposed to follow? It's because fundamentally people aren't good. Uh, they they make mistakes. They have problems. They have errors, and that's why we have rules. We know we're not going to we're not going to live up to those rules, but we try anyway. And that's in some sense what religious life is all about, right? You try to live a good life, you fail, uh, you repent, etc. Um, and I think so. So I think there's that strain of my upbringing, which was thinking, OK, when it comes to investing, I shouldn't I should, you know, I, someone who perhaps had not come from that background and say, well, I'm an angel. I'm going to do the right thing all the time. 
And I think for me, I always said, well, you know, human rationality is bounded. There's so much we don't understand. And we make decisions for all sorts of bad reasons all the time. And I think everybody can relate to that. Uh, and so what we need is a set of rules for investing, just like we have a set of rules for life. Um, and those, uh, and I think the, you know, growing up as the son of a lawyer, I think also shaped my view, right? You, laws are what uh, make a good society um, and they're what should make a good investment template, right? You should say, okay, um, I believe that it is good to buy companies that are cheap, okay? Th th that's a good law. Um, how you manifest that law happens to be quantitative, right? I mean, I think you, you're going to want to go through and say, well, how do you measure cheapness? Is it price to book? Is it EBIT to enterprise value? Is it price to earnings ratio? Um, and is it the cheapest 10% or the cheapest 20% or how do I think about that? And so the manifestation of the laws is indeed quantitative. Um, but the idea to have laws, I think, is a very um, humanities type oriented view that encompasses uh, not just a view of investing, but I think a broader worldview about how people interact and who people are. Absolutely. I mean, even to take it to the, uh, to the, the, you know, not all investors like to say to uh, compare it with gambling, but, you know, especially when you're playing blackjack, you know, you're more, you're more likely to win if you at least follow the same set of rules, you know, that's, you know, I'm talking to the person that, you know, uh, either stands pat at 12 when they're facing a, a eight or higher or six or higher, or they, they happen to, to, uh, to hit on that every single time. You know, as long as you have that set of rules, you're more likely to win as long as you stay the course with that. And that, that right. can be difficult. And there is a, you know, the, if you look at investor surveys, you know, surveys of professional investors, they all think they're very lucky and very smart, right? So they're, they're all taking, in some sense, these risks on themselves that they probably shouldn't take. Uh, and, and, and that's why I think a rules-based approach is better. And, and I think the the next thing that I think is really important about a rules-based, I mean, it's not rules-based, but let's call it an actuarial approach to investing. Um, if you look at all the research on forecasting, and investing is a form of forecasting, um, uh, you'll find that the best forecasts are actuarial in nature. An actuarial in the sense of uh, like uh, an insurance actuary, how insurance agencies do forecasts is basically the right way to do forecasts. And, you know, there's a reason for that, how credit ratings agencies do it. They say, okay, let's take the key factors that we know about you um, and let's run those into a model, weight them according to what we have seen across millions and millions of cases and assign you some sort of score, right? Our, if you drive a motorcycle and you smoke cigarettes, we're going to treat you one way on this uh, health insurance uh, you know, calculation. And if you're a 22-year-old um, uh, male with no prior health things that, you know, walks to work and has a great job, you know, we're going to treat you a different way, right? I mean, there's just very logical, simple actuarial rules. Um, Philip Tetlock and Daniel Kahneman talk, call these base rates, right? You just say um, uh, base rates, and, and those are a key way to guide investment decisions. So what you want to do, just like your blackjack example, say, what are the base rates? What are the likely, what's the distribution of probabilities given this outcome historically that X will happen, and therefore, what should I do? And I think that's a very sensible way to approach investing. So, so I wanted to follow up there is because when you're dealing with the actuarial examples, I mean, you're dealing with, as you said, millions of different data points. And when we're talking small micro nano caps, we don't always have those data points, that's for sure. So, I mean, let's, I mean, we're, I don't want to get so much into your investing strategy just yet. Cause I, I still actually have a couple of questions about your background, but just from, you know, a data and then looking at micro caps point of yeah. side of things, I mean, for you, how do you handle that? Well, you know, actually, the, the exact opposite of what you said is true, because for microcaps, you have so much more data because uh, not 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 data about that specific stock, 
But the vast majority of stocks today are micro caps or small caps, right? The stock market is a pyramid. There are many, many more small companies than there are big companies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been true historically. So if you're looking at backtest data or you're saying, hey, let me pull down the you know, crisp CompuStat database back to 1965, the vast, vast majority of the companies that are in that database are smaller microcaps, right? So your comp set is actually very, very rich in microcaps. Right. You're able to say, hey, does this work? Does that work? Does, you know, what, uh, should I care about return on equity? Should I care about this? And you can mine these massive data sets in the U.S., Europe, Japan, you know, you name it, and come up with really good answers um, that should inform your decisions about whether the individual company you're looking at is likely to be a good risk or not. So then why aren't more fund managers then developing small micro nano cap strategies? I mean, almost every I, I mean, look, a good amount have them. But then why aren't there more? I mean, with yeah. all, all the technology that's out there, I mean, why? Yeah, so this is, this is uh, and, and I love this because, and I've talked about this before, so some of you heard me speak before, you'll know this. But, you know, when I was little, my, my dad, I had this plan to get us all into college where all the kids would play niche on competitive sports. So my brother was a male figure skater. Uh, my wife, uh, sorry, my sister was a, a female ice hockey player. I rode crew. My little brother played squash and then switched to crew, right? So he had this whole strategy uh, laid out. Um, and I think one of the uh, lessons of that is don't play the most competitive games, right? Everybody's drawn to the most competitive games. How many people play football in America? How many people play basketball, right? You're like, these are huge numbers. So the chances you're going to be the best at it are minuscule, right? What about fencing? Right. What are the odds that you as a 12 year old could be the best fencer in the world? You know, they are probably a million times better than the chances that you're going to be an NFL starting quarterback. A million times. I mean, literally, the odds are just um, so, so much uh, better. Right. But it starts from the decision to do something extremely unconventional and niche. Right. Something that might not have that much much prestige or money. There's no money in fencing. Um, There's a lot of money in football. Right. Uh, and I think the same thing is true in the investing world. Everybody wants to play the football of investing. They all want to be large cap investors, right? They all want to be buying Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix. I don't own any of those, by the way. I don't have to do the disclosures. Um, uh, but, uh, but right, they're, they're all very oriented around, um, around playing that game because that's where the money is, right? Because you want to manage $10 billion, $20 billion. My friend, you are buying large caps. Right. You can't manage 10 or 20 billion of microcaps. Right. The, the entire size of the microcap index is like a tenth. I don't, I don't know. I'm just making up number. It is significantly smaller um, than the market cap of Apple. Right. So, you, you know, it, and it's it's a it's a world you have to say, OK, I want to play this game because I know that winning here is easier than playing that other game. Right. And I think you and I know um, that winning in microcaps is actually an easier game to win because it's less competitive um, and there's many more opportunities, right, than winning in large cap. Um, however, if you're a fund manager, right, and I sit here and say, okay, um, how much money, let's say I want to buy a concentrated portfolio of 50 microcaps. Okay, well, there's uh, average microcaps, about 200 million market cap. Let's say the average daily volume on that is of $500,000, you know, roughly. Um, I don't want to own more than four times daily volume. That's two million per name. That gets me to owning eighty million dollars, right? The eighty million dollar fund. Okay, and then I'm going to charge two percent on that. Okay, I'm going to make one point six million. You know, right? So you do the math, and that's not enough to keep 
Blackstone or BlackRock or, you know, anyone pay anyone's lunch. I mean, it can pay, you know, one PM and one analyst. It can pay a small shop salary. Right. But it's really hard to build a big business doing microcaps. And that's precisely why the opportunity is so great there to generate alpha. A follow-up I have to that, and, and it's interesting because you know one of the reasons I even really I, I really started this podcast is really to show the next generation different investing strategies that are out there to invest in microcaps. And of course, there's not one way to do it, you know, and also really to just bring more eyeballs and bring more awareness to this asset class because this is a great place to build wealth, and uh, at least in my opinion, you know. So for you, you know, do you feel that? You would want more competition in for looking at various micro, small micro nano caps, or is it kind of like you know this is still the best kept secret? And I don't know, I might no, want to. It's not a it's not a best kept it's not a best kept secret. Everybody knows it, you know. Um, and you know it's what all the researchers. I mean, there's this great paper, uh, replicating anomalies, that came out. It's, a, it's sort of shockwave through quant world. Basically, this guy did a, ran through every single quant like factor in the world um, and basically concluded that they didn't work outside of small microcaps, right? He's like, they don't, they don't generate only a few of them, like 10% of them work outside of small microcaps. And I looked at that and said, so you're saying that they all work in small microcaps, right? Like if you just flip the, what the whole point of the paper is, you're like, okay, this guy just did all this work. And like virtually every one of these damn things works in small microcaps. Um, uh, so he knows that all the academics that do this research know it. Um, I think it's pretty clear, you know, that, you know, any quant who's looking at this sort of stuff realizes it. They just say, OK, but we can't trade that because it's too small. Or, you know, oh, but we have a minimum volume th threshold. Oh, we, you know, we don't trade anything under 400 million a market cap. Right. That's how we train our models. So we're not going to do that because we can't manage money in it. Um, and so I think more competition is great. It's going to increase the volumes. It's, it's a good thing for more people to trade microcaps from my, my perspective. Um, and I think it's unfortunate. I think that, um, you know, this shift to passive, one of the big negatives of that is that, you know, I think we have a whole generation of people that are much less likely than their parents to own single names. They're much more likely to own funds uh, and say, oh, I want broad exposure to X rather than say, hey, you know, I learned about this really cool company and I'm holding it at my brokerage. And I, I think that that world was kind of great. Right. I mean, it was funny. I was talking to a, a very large um uh, investor, an outsourced uh, CIO. And he said, well, you know, one of the big growth areas of our business is co-invest in private equity. It's amazing. You know, we, we, um, we don't have to pay any fees. We, you know, we just get direct, a big chunk of a single name. Um, and as long as we like the name, we think it's awesome. Um, and he's like, but, you know, that got me to sort of thinking, you know, maybe we could just buy shares and in individual stocks. And I was like, yep, you know, if you're obsessed with private equity deals, right, if you're obsessed, like, why don't you just go buy single name securities? Almost any any theme, any idea you want to express, there's a micro cap out there um, that meets that criteria that you can bet on. Uh, and what what fun to be able to do it with, you know, complete liquidity, no fees, don't pay anyone. It's on your own research, your own judgment. Uh, and you know that when you do that work, it's very unlikely that that many other people have done the work on a $200 million market cap. I mean, would you would you say that people just don't want to do the work because I hate to say it or just you know look they're lazy I mean it's 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 hard work it's hard going from coming to come and then you're thinking about the opportunity especially if you don't if you're you know you're not a hedge fund and you have a short uh, a short strategy you know you're like Ugh, the opportunity cost of me researching every single company and you know one or two of them are end up being something that we could even 
you know, uh, fits all of our criteria. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, look, you look at a company that has 10 million of market cap, right? Um, you already know a fair amount about that company. It's a good company. It generates a lot of profit, right? I mean, you, with, with some exceptions, but, you know, for the most part, right, these big companies haven't figured out, right? So you can decide whether you think the future is bright or bad or whatever, but some of the more basic questions are already resolved by the time you get to a $10 billion company. It has a viable business model. It's generally pretty profitable. It's not going to go bankrupt next year. Probably is a competent management team, right? Like the, the right, right. So the, in my mind, the rewards to research are much lower there. When you go into small and micro cap world and it's like, are the company financials like reasonable? Is it going to go bankrupt or management team a crook? You know, I mean, th these sort of questions actually are relevant. Right. Oh, it's interesting. And you can actually go find stuff and learn about them and make a decision based on that. That matters. Right. Right. If you actually say, hey, the probability that you're going to be right, predicting that an S&P 500 company is going to go bankrupt or like this, the chances you're, you're going to be right predicting that some microcap went bankrupt are probably a lot higher. Right. And this is why all the quant strategies work in microcap. Right. Because you run a bankruptcy screen and say, don't buy bankrupt things, right? Okay, that's going to identify a set of really problematic things in microcap. It's not going to really identify that good of an example of bankruptcy risk in the S&P 500. Same with value or anything else that you're looking for, which is what I think makes microcap such a wonderful opportunity set. All right. So, Dan, I, I, I think now is a great segue to, to really dig into your investing strategy. So take it from here. You know, What exactly is it? What's your approach to looking at the small micro nano cap space? Yeah. So I'd say first, you know, I fall within the broad school of small value, right? So I like small companies because for all the reasons we just talked about, and then I like value, right? So I want to buy things cheap um, and really cheap, right? So I'm ranking on EBITDA enterprise value, uh, EBIT to EV, free cash yield, price to book, and looking for things that are at the very top of those lists, right? Things that are the most, most cheap, right? Stuff that's three, four, five times EBITDA that's you know, one times or less price to book that's generating a 15, 20% free cash flow yield, right? That's my world, okay? Um, now, within that world, um, I, I look for levered companies. So I'm looking for, which is unique, right? Most people say they look for fortress balance sheets. Um, and that's, there's merit to that. Um, but I'm looking for the levered ones because for two reasons. One um, is that uh, uh, if, a, if you're betting on multiple expansion um, uh, and you're levered, Right. Any bit of multiple expansion gets multiplied by the leverage. Right. So you actually get an amplification of your multiple mean reversion. Right. So in a value strategy, that levered component is going to be beneficial. The second reason I like it is because debt pay down, I think, is a really excellent and under misunderstood uh, method of value creation. Right. So if you pay a dividend, everybody knows what a dividend is. Everybody can understand a dividend. Buybacks, marginally more complex, but most people understand shareholder yield, right? Um, so they kind of get that. But debt pay down, you don't even see, right? There's no distribution. It doesn't seem to affect equity. All it does is reduces debt on the balance sheet, which should, according to financial theory, increase the value of the equity. And it should also reduce bankruptcy risk. So if you're reducing bankruptcy risk, you should also get multiple expansion because the more likely you are to get bankrupt, the cheaper you should be. Right. So as you pay off debt, right, your valuation should go up. So you should be getting a sort of double hit. The direct benefit of the cash uh, that goes to delever and thus increases equity value, and then the decrease in bankruptcy driving a re-rating of the firm. So I think that delevering, uh, because it's not uh, obvious to many people, um, but has multiple benefits, and by the way, it's going to reduce future income statements, and that income is going to grow. 
right? So there are all these wonderful benefits to deleveraging, right? So debt, is debt good? No, debt's bad, but paying off debt, really good. So looking for the subset of small value firms that are paying off debt, that's the next step. The, the final step in the process, uh, which is one that I've devoted years to studying because it's the hardest uh, and the most important, is among small, cheap stocks with debt. A disproportionate number of them are completely crap and are going to go bankrupt and are disasters. So how do you eliminate the bankruptcy risks, the disasters, the things that are way too risky from your universe? So you're really finding the ones where um, the story is really clean, the underlying business is healthy, um, and you're really getting that pure bet on deleveraging and multiple expansion. Uh, and that's what I spend you know, an inordinate amount of our research and time on. Um, because anyone can tell it's cheap. Anyone can tell it's levered. Predicting deleveraging a little harder, right? We're getting to a place where we have edge. And then predicting within that universe which of these things are not going to go bankrupt are actually fundamentally healthy businesses. That's, I think, where there's a lot of art. So do you have a model in place then for that that step two? Or is that where most of your qualitative research comes in? No. We, we, there are a lot of qualitative, uh, sorry, quantitative signals um, that are, are really helpful. So... Um, you know, I'd say the starting point, the sort of like uh, uh, Bible in that regard is Joseph Petrosky's work, right? So Petrosky lays out this excellent framework, his F-score, for evaluating the financial health of companies, right? Uh, and you're looking for relatively simple things. Is it profitable? Is it generating cash flow? Um, if it has debt, is it reducing debt? Um, what is its uh, asset turnover? Um, and, and asset turnover is a really interesting one because it manifests itself. That that idea of dividing something on the income statement by something on the balance sheet, right? You can look at ROE, ROA, gross profit to assets, asset turnover, right? That whole line of profitability metric, th those are all really useful. And like value signals, you want to kind of use them in combination. But those are really key to understanding businesses. So, I mean, you've got to be using that. Um, uh, uh, so where we where we look at right, we're looking at gross profitability and those other metrics. We're looking at value. Uh, we're looking at free cash flow generation. We're looking at profitability and net, you know, making sure it has positive net income. We're looking at the probability of deleveraging, which is the model that we built. Uh, and then we actually have built a separate model that looks at um, where uh, that the rest of those things go wrong. So. Where if you if you're running that model, where are you most likely to make mistakes? What type of companies? Let's flag those so we can avoid them. Uh, and that's basically how our process works. And then we go and say, okay, let's look at these um, uh, with a human eye, uh, because I think you know quantitative tools are wonderful. Um, they're very effective, um, but um, they often miss things, right? They get confused, or financials are reported in a weird way, and they send you down some rabbit hole, or there's something that's blaringly obvious to a fundamental analyst, like the CEO just got put in jail. But like you never told the computer to look for whether the CEO is in jail or not. So it's, it's, it's telling you it's the number one thing in the world, right? The minute you spend a minute doing a Google News search, you realize, hell no, I'm not touching this thing with a 10-foot pole. But it's that type of thing where I think you have to blend the two to get the best output. So where would you say this? you're inspired to have this strategy? I mean, was this just years of, of honing your, your own investing thesis and you finally got here and doing the research on what's worked over the years? You know, what, what got you here? Yeah, so I think it, it, it's. I think we all study uh, the great investors of the past, right? There are a lot of Buffett acolytes that say, "Hey, I do exactly what Buffett does." Uh, I think there are a lot of you know Phil, Bill, Phil Graham. I mean, you, you go down the list, Ben Graham, sorry, uh, uh, Phil Fisher. The, you know, there are lots of these people that follow um, the, the the icons of old, right? So I think we all are sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, right? So what my my investment philosophy is modeled on a a, a, a different set of 
figures, which is the LBO industry, right? So if you look from 1980 to 2006 or so, the returns of the LBOs were just unbelievable, right? I mean, and I worked at Bain Capital, which is one of the best of these firms, right? Um, uh, these guys just minted money for years and years and years and years, right? And the question is, what did they do, right? How did the private equity guys make so much darn money? And how are their returns so much better uh, than public markets over such a long period of time, right? How did um, uh, uh, Blackstone do it? How did KKR do it? How did TPG do it? How did Carlyle do it? How did Bank Capital do it? How did Apollo do it? And you know what? The answer is really, really simple. Okay, they did they did three things right. Okay, first and foremost, private equity is a micro cap strategy. Okay, their buying companies about two hundred million of market cap. Right? Isn't that fascinating? It's a micro cap strategy. Always has been. The difference between private equity and a micro cap investor is they realize, oh my gosh, we can solve the capacity problem by just buying the whole darn company, right? Rather than buying 1% of it and putting you know, a small amount of our fund in it, um, we're just gonna buy 100% of the company and own it for five years, right? So they're taking on that illiquidity risk. Um, so first and foremost, they're a micro cap strategy that enhances their capacity by buying 100% ownership uh, rather than buying a small stake in the public markets. Um, second, um, private equity firms use debt. Okay, so they have since time immemorial, they generally borrow about 65% loan to value, um, uh, and uh, that's been a key part of the buyout model for many, many years. Uh, we can argue about where that's good and where that's bad, but I think indisputably that was key to their success. Uh, and the third, and this is really important, is that from about uh, 1980 till about 2006, private equity firms were buying companies at a big discount to where the broader market traded. Generally, six or seven, seven or eight turns, uh, uh, seven or eight times uh, EBITDA when the public markets were trading at 10 to 11. So there was this massive multiple arbitrage for 20 years, right, where you could, or tw 25 years, where you could buy these small microcaps in the private markets, go buy some family owned business or carve out a big company, buy it really cheap, you know, run it for a few years, uh, and then uh, either A, sell it to a public company who, trades in the public markets at public market valuations, which are much higher, and so can pay you a big premium to what you paid for it, um, or you IPO it yourself and you make a big premium, right? So it's a great model. So, and because you were levered, you got the benefits that multiple expansion were multiplied. Um, so, and because you were buying these tiny little small companies, they could always be bought by someone else, right? One of the great tool, one of the great things about being a microcap investor, right? When other people figure it out, strategics figure it out, they just buy your company, right? And they pay a big premium to do so. Uh, and so that was the story of PE. And I studied this for a long time at Bank Capital. And I came to the conclusion that today, uh, that multiple arbitrage, which was so important to driving private equity returns, doesn't exist anymore. And fast forward to today, uh, private markets trade at much higher prices than public markets, right? So you're buying really expensive microcaps with a lot of debt. Bad idea, right? Definition of a bad idea. Uh, instead, what you want to do is say, let's go learn from what Mitt Romney did. Let's go learn from what Leon Black did. And let's do it in the most pure way, just like they used to do it. Um, and I think there's actually a lot of overlap with some of the early Buffett ideas, um, which, you know, uh, buying these cigar butts. And, uh, and, and I think Buffett would admit, right, that if he, uh, if he was only managing a billion dollars, his returns would be much better than they are today um, because he could go and do this type of strategy. All right, Dan. So then I also have to ask, I mean, you know, you, you've done all this research. You see what was working, you know, and and – over this 25-year stretch, and you probably already answered this question, and I'm just not smart enough to uh, deduce from that. But you know, I have to ask. You know, when you were starting up Vertad Advisors, why, why didn't you want to try and do a similar strategy instead? You know, of what you're doing right now. 
Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, the reason that I didn't want to do private equity, right, is because private equity market has changed from where it was 20 years ago. It used to be the world of undiscovered companies that you could buy cheap, right, that nobody was interested in, right? It used to be what microcaps are today, but it's not. Now everybody and their mother runs a private equity firm. Um, if uh, you try to sell a company of $5 million of EBITDA, you'll get 50 bids from private equity firms, and I'm not kidding, right? It's a mayhem. Um, and as a result of that, um, purchase prices are crazily high, in fact, significantly higher than public markets. So if you want to do what made private equity guys rich, you got to do it in microcaps today, right? That's where you find the types of companies uh, that PE used to buy, that they're small, they're cheap, they have reasonable amounts of leverage, they trade at big discounts to the rest of the market. That's the microcap world today. It's forgotten, nobody's interested in it, it's not thought of as an institutional asset class. That's where the opportunity is. Gotcha. So, you know, from, from there, I mean, when you're, we went through your criteria and, and a lot of your strategy as well. You know, I just, I, it's so funny. I can't get over the, your, your unique approach to microcap investing because literally almost every microcap focused investor that I've had on here is debt is the devil. It might as well be the devil, you know? So it's just, it's so fascinating how you were able to use that to your advantage to find you know, some quality names that have made you successful. I mean, were, were, were there any times where you're like, oh, I don't know if this, I, this strategy will work for me? <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think debt, debt is bad, right? I'm, I'm not disagreeing. Right, right. With but, but paying it off is really good, right? That's what they're missing. That's all, it's just one small step. It's like, okay, but if you can pick the ones that reduce their debt, that are getting better, right? Then you've got an improvement story on your hands um, that's actually much easier to predict and understand than a growth story, right? I mean, picking the hot growth company is much more competitive and much more difficult than picking which of the levered companies is gonna pay off debt next year, mm -hmm. right? Um, and if one is rewarded just as much as the other, why not do the, do the easy one? Oh, of course. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, look, it's it, it's certainly stressful, right? You know, we're value oriented. You know, I've been doing this uh, uh, full time for five years. Uh, I probably could not have picked a worse five years in the history of markets to be a value investor. So, um, you know, I wish that I'd started, I don't know, whenever this damn growth rally ends. I think we've had a two or three standard deviation move in growth valuations relative to value valuations. Um, and if you're an extremist like myself operating in the smallest, the smallest and cheapest stocks, right, it has been rough sledding, uh, uh, rough sledding. Uh, and, and gee, I, I wish that I'd had the idea of launching a FANG focused fund five years ago instead of a deep value microcap fund. Uh, but I think the evidence is clear, the logic is clear. Uh, and it's only a time uh, before I think we see a big reversal in the hot growth names. And, and since those hot growth names are such a large component of indexes, I think you see a lot of pain for passive investors who are buying the total market index, the S&P 500, um, and not realizing uh, how much a market cap weight has gone to a select few big companies with very big valuations. Uh, so I think it, I think the times are going to change. It's going to be a great opportunity for uh, people that are investing outside the index to win. Um, but it's been uh, much better to go with the trend and go with the fad investors than it has been to think outside the box the last few years. Gotcha. Okay. So when looking at levered companies, you're looking at the balance sheet, you see that you know they have debt on there. Um, I have to ask, I mean, when you're looking at the amount of debt that they have uh, on their balance sheet and then you're, you're doing your evaluations to see whether or not they can pay it off, I mean, what, what sort of levels are you comfortable with? Or, yeah, yeah so this is, uh, you know, I, I, I joke that, you know, I run a levered 
company. Uh, I invest in levered companies, but in aggregate, the companies I invest in are less levered than the Russell 2000. So um, um, it's sort of funny. It's like you know, I make a whole big deal investing in levered companies, and actually the companies I own are less levered. So, uh, but you know, the more you learn about debt, the more conservative you get about it. Um, so, so I'd say there are two different ways to think about debt, right? There's debt relative to EBITDA, and the lower that number is, generally the better, right? Um, and I would say, um, you know, for me, um, sort of two to four times debt to EBITDA is the sweet spot, right? That's where I like to invest. Above four, I get worried. Um, at six and above, I, I, I think you've got to be suicidal to do, right? Um, and I think um, uh, so, so on that side, um, less, less leverage relative to assets or relative to EBITDA is a good thing. Um, however, debt relative to enterprise value, um, the more debt, the better, right? So if you can find something that's three times EBITDA, but it's, uh, trades at three times EBITDA, it's 90% levered, right? That's, that's something I'm going to love. I'm going to look and say, okay, it's, you know, whatever, uh, a 2.7 X, uh, debt to EBITDA, uh, 0.3 X equity, right? This is, you know, exactly what I want to do. Now, of course, anything that looks like that's probably going bankrupt in about three months. So, you know, that, that's where your bankruptcy filter has to kick in. But if you can find that sweet spot where maybe it's the, you know, maybe it's the five times EBITDA, that's three turns levered and that's not going bankrupt, but you know, pretty, pretty darn good ratios. Um, that's, that's really the sweet spot for me. So these things are trade-offs. It's, it's with debt, it's not a pure ranking thing. So then on the qualitative side, I mean, when you're doing that, that extra bit of research afterwards to make sure, you know, CEO is not in jail, that kind of stuff. I mean, do you have to talk when you talk with management teams where you're like, okay, look, if, if you're looking to pay down the debt from cash flows or, if you do, are you able to do the math and you're like, you know what, they might have to raise some money. I mean, is that, is that a red flag for you? Or like, okay, if they got to go. Yeah, so, that, so that stuff's pretty obvious, right? right? So, you know, we're, we're buying companies that generate so much cash relative to their market cap. It's silly. Um, and that I think is, you know, the, 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 the key question, right. Is, is that cash going to persist? Right? right. They generated 50 million of cash last year. They're going to generate 50 million next year. They're going to go 50 million to zero. Uh, and that's where I think the work comes in of saying, okay, the computer is always going to look at LTM financials or last quarter financial. It's always going to look at history and tell you, based on the historical balance sheet cash flow income statement, this company should trade at a much higher multiple than it does today, right? That's the math the quant model is doing, right? Um, and what you're trying to say is, okay, but is there going to be some really material change to the negative to the income statement cash flow or balance sheet that the computer is not seeing and doesn't understand? That could be a negative 50% guidance on EBITDA, right? Which you look at and you say, holy smokes, you know, not touching that thing, right? Um, or, uh, you know, it could be the CEO's in jail, or it could be, you know, it's some commodity linked thing and the commodity price has just fallen 40%. So you just sort of know, gee, LTM financials ain't what. NTM financials are going to be. Right. Um, but that's the type of sort of common sense judgment we're trying to do on every name we invest in. Well, I mean, you know what's interesting about this model is because, you know, you almost you almost kind of want to find companies that are comfortable with taking on debt because, I mean, really, it's it's better on the, the, on the uh, capital structure side of things. You know, is that something that you also considered? That's right. Yeah. I mean, a company that can take on debt, a creditworthy company, that's a good thing. Um, and having a little healthy debt to pressure the management team to do reasonable things and have the bankers on the line telling them what to do, it's not all bad. Um, you, you know, you, you, they've got a sort of natural pressure on them. Uh, and I think that's often a good thing, right? And I think you see a lot of these guys with cash on the balance sheet. Why are they going to listen to some investor? They've got $50 million of cash in the bank to burn through before they have to listen to you. Um, the guys with leverage are a little more humble. 
Hey, man, look, anything that doesn't dilute shareholders, I think is always a good thing. Exactly. And that can be a problem, too. But hopefully you, you avoid those. That's for sure. So, I mean, you know, since since going full time in the last, you know, five years ago, what would you say has been the biggest lesson you've learned? You know, in, don't in, buy things that are going to go bankrupt. <laughs> Check. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's it. And then everything else is just a permutation on how to do that as far in advance of them going bankrupt as possible. All right. You'd, you'd have this is story time now. I mean, look, don't name the company. I'm not, at, you know, I, I don't do that. But <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. It's, it's not necessarily that I've owned anything that's gone bankrupt. Um, uh, well, I've owned it. It's a question of how long after I sold it. Right. I mean, uh, and I think it's a recognition that um, uh, that, uh, you know, deteriorating credit stats are a really bad thing. Right. And, and you can see. So I think that there's a difference between uh, negative growth businesses, the melting ice cubes, which are part of my investment strategy. I invest in those. Right. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. But you can make a lot of money in those. Uh, if you get a little multiple expansion, the decline's a little slower than it was. So I like those. But deteriorating credit quality is another thing altogether. And that's the stuff you got to be worried about. Big asset write downs, um, things where the, um, you know, materially negative changes in credit rating, right? That stuff is really bad. Uh, and that trend will kill you. Um, so the minute you get into one of those things, and, and they always look cheap, and that's the problem, right? Uh, I'd say my, um, if I had to name, you know, one, if I could just go back and tell myself, Dan, don't do it, it would be offshore drillers because they always look cheap and they were always crappy credits, right? And and they all went bankrupt or virtually all of them, uh, fortunately, uh, you know, and I lost so much money doing those damn things, right? Because uh, they always look good to my model uh, and they were always crappy credits. And I think it's it's learning from the sort of what are the other offshore driller type examples in the world to avoid. I mean, are there any sectors in particular that happen to fit the model? Again, you know me. I'm not going to ask any about any names. No, but, no. In ter- but in terms of sectors that really fit the model well? Always industrials, right? Industrials businesses are, you know, bread and butter for what we do. You know, they tend to be, you know, 30 plus percent of, of our portfolios. Um, uh, uh, and I think there's good reason for that. They, they, they're borrowing to build a factory. The factory starts churning out whatever it is that they uh, manufacture. They pay off the debt as they sell the products. People re-rate the company up, but they still have some discount because they're cyclical. Right? That that that's the most common uh, type of story we see, uh, and we see it in all range of industries. Um, and then, you know, uh, I'd say we see uh, another sort of not a sector per se, but um, you know, we see a lot of companies that made bad acquisitions. Right? Um, uh, you know, they took on debt to do some acquisition that just hasn't worked out. Um, that's sort of the other most common. Uh, story and they're you know digging their way out of some mountain of debt from some really bad business they bought um, and and look you know the hubris of management teams in terms of being acquisitive and buying stuff is 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 a well told tale um, and we sort of a year or two after they've made some egregious mistake you know we're buying in gotcha so uh, you know I I, I... It's funny. We went through this whole investing strategy conversation. I actually had some follow-ups on your background, you know, (laughs) because, you know, look, working at Bridgewater, I mean, when I was getting my MBA, I mean, I think in all classes, my behavioral uh, class, you know, talking about, you know, the environment there where everyone's just really honest with you right up front. I mean, what was it like to experience some of that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, 
Bridgewater is full of totally brilliant people and sort of the core insight of saying, let's uh, apply logic and deep empirical backtesting to everything we do and be really rigorous about debating and being open to putting a lot of pressure on ideas to make sure that we're doing things for reasons that aren't political um, is all very, very, very good. Um, I think, um, however, if, um, you know, uh, like anything, right, you take a classroom of children or, and say, you know, the rule is that everyone has to always be kind to one another, right? Kindness is our key virtue, right? That's going to, A, nobody's kind all the time, right? That's just not how people work. So some people are going to be unkind, right? And then second of all, uh, you know, I mean, there's just any extreme, extreme focus on one trait, um, it's it's inevitably going to run into the friction that people aren't that way. Uh, and it's going to create also some level of political pol political things, because there's going to be some kid that knows how to pretend to be kind, pretend to be kind so well that everyone thinks he's kind when really he's not a kind person. Right. Um, and as long as he's kind to the right people, he's going to rise up. Right. right. And I think so having a culture based on total honesty and radical transparency um, sounds perfect, but communism sounds perfect too. Um, I think, um, you know, I think that, uh, I think that stepping back and saying, Hey, but the reality is most people aren't honest all the time. And you know what? Sometimes we don't want people to be honest with us, right? Sometimes if we're having a bad day, we don't really need to someone say, Hey, Dan, you sounded like a complete idiot on that podcast and half your ideas are completely crappy because <laughs> I listened, they were stupid. Right. So sort I of say, well, could you, you know, You've told me tomorrow, um, you know, <laughs> or give me some constructive feedback, even if that's not what you meant. Right. So um, I think that Bridgewater, it's a I think I think that I'm sort of uh, more skeptical of the culture, even as I am uh, very appreciative of what it results in, in terms of their investing strategies. Gotcha. And then, of course, I mean, I feel like this is, goes without saying, but, you know, maybe I guess philosophically, what were some of the things that you took away from your experience at Bain Capital? Yeah, so you know, Bain is, uh, I think, much more focused uh, than I am on individual company analysis and sort of idiosyncratic decision making. Um, and I think my views were actually, I, I, I'm not sure that works that well, right? I, I'm not sure that um, analyzing a company really, really, really deeply makes you actually a better investor in that company. I think it's more important to have the fundamental rules right. I think Bain Capital um, is very quality oriented, and I think there is uh, there's a good insight there, right? And if you can identify really high quality companies, that's wonderful. The danger with quality oriented investors is a tendency to massively overpay for things um, uh, because they, you know, uh, they just, you know, you're so focused on quality, you forget that you shouldn't pay 19 times EBITDA for it. Um, and I'm much more in the realm of, hey, let's start with the really, really, really cheap stuff and buy the highest quality cheap stuff. Than I am. Let's really go into the high quality stuff and try to be better at knowing what true quality really is. Um, but that's more of a philosophical difference. Gotcha. All right. So going back to uh, investing strategy stuff, um, you know, you also happen to publish a newsletter that I, I, uh, I, you, you publishes relatively frequently. But you just put out one that was very timely because you know, as as we've seen, we're recording this on a Tuesday. Uh, February 25th. You know, we've seen the markets drop, you know, about 6% in the last couple of days. And and you published this uh, this piece called uh, Crisis Investing, How to Maximize Returns During Market Panics. You know, so I, I just want to know, what, what was your thesis here? Yeah. So I think um, 
the key question, right? I think I think golden the the holy grail of investing is to know when a crisis is about to come. Let's assume that's impossible. Maybe some of your listeners uh, know how to do it, but let's start with the premise: it's impossible. The next best thing, right? And I think we look back on March of '09 and say, "Gee, I wish I could go back to March of '09, and boy, would I buy everything in the market, right? Or boy, would I buy this type of stock in that market." And what I wanted to say is, actually, first, can we define when we're in a crisis, right? So, what's a good indicator that we're in a crisis? So we know, like, ding, 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 ding. This is a time that feels like March of '09, right? I should be buying. Uh, and then second, what should you buy, right? What should you go buy on March of 09, right? If, if you could get into time travel and go back. Um, and the answer is really interesting. So um, the, the first thing you want to look for is illiquid stocks, microcaps, right? So illiquid stocks, because they get dislocated more just because of the liquidity supply demand dynamics, right? Like uh, on December you know, on March, uh, you know, February 28th of 2009, right? There is a buyer for Microsoft stock, right? Someone is out there willing to trade Microsoft. I don't know Microsoft, but, uh, but you know, there's someone out there willing to buy it, right? They're thinking about Microsoft. They've heard the name. They're out there, right? Okay, that price is not going to just plummet, right? On the other hand, you know, find some no-name microcap, and that day when everyone else is panicking, there could be literally zero buyers, right? There is just no one out there that wants that damn thing, right? Nobody's thinking about it. And whoever wants to sell it, it just wants to get out, right? And so the price drops like 5x more than Microsoft that day. And if you're willing to buy those things during those market panics, um, you're putting yourself in a very good position when the rebound comes. So what's the next question? Well, you want to buy the stuff oh, that's dropped a lot and that's really cheap, right? So... Um, the stuff that's cheap relative to any sort of uh, financial metric, because that's going to mean revert back up, right? So it fell from trading at 25 times EBITDA to 22 times EBITDA could have a long ways further to fall. Um, uh, and the next thing is you want to buy stuff that's going to come through the recession and survive. So right. you're looking for cash flow positive, net income positive, uh, decent ROE businesses. Um, and if you buy that stuff, you're right. You're gonna. That's the stuff that just whipsaws back up, right? When the money starts flowing back into markets, uh, and that's where you really want to focus your time. And I think it goes against what a lot of people think, right? So they think, oh, you know, in a in a downturn, you know, I've got my list of companies I'd love to own, right? If Microsoft ever got you know this cheap, I'd buy it, right? And you're saying, okay, but a lot of people have that stupid list, right? And a lot of people are out buying Microsoft, so yeah, earning Microsoft's great. You're probably going to earn market-like returns buying Microsoft. Uh, when things rebound. But gee, if you had been willing to go down into the illiquid stuff, your returns would have been so much higher, right? Because you're actually, you know, if you think about risk and reward, you're taking a big risk to buy that crap when other people wouldn't or can't. Okay. So then my obvious next question that I think all my audience wants to know is, you know, what's your criteria for that ding, ding, ding crisis is upon us or here? So I look at high yield spreads. Um, gotcha. uh, they're a wonderful, wonderful metric. And I think over 6% I define as a crisis. All right. So, Dan, what would you say is the most difficult aspect of your job? Yeah, I, I think the most difficult part of my job, right, is that micro caps and small caps are unusually volatile, right? They're, they're much more volatile than larger cap stocks. And so, you know, if I look at my P&L every day, you know, being up 3% or down 3% is much more normal for me than it is for other people. Um, and uh, though it is more normal... Right. Those down days are so painful. Right. Because you start sitting there worrying like, oh, my God, is everything I did stupid? You know, uh, have I made some egregious mistake in the portfolio? 
Uh, and you've got to learn to train yourself to say, hey, you know what? I've just this is just the game I've chosen, right? I decided to go into this high volatility world and I'm going to stick with it. Um, and you can't let that rattle you. Um, and I think one of the um, the uh, things that I most uh, counsel you know people that are are new to investing in this, right, is you've got to build up your tolerance for that sort of volatility, right? If you want to be really successful at this game, um, you've got to be willing to live through the wild ride, uh, and it is going to be wild. And you got to have something that's going to sustain you. And I think that that has to be a good discipline process based on research and deep, deep research, right? Because at some point, no matter what stock you buy, um, your biggest winner is probably going to have some period in it where it dropped 30%. And you could have sold it at that bottom, right? And instead, you held on, right? This is the story. Every microcap investor has 15 stories like that, right? So what is going to get you through when your stock drops 30% and you're going to hold on to it? And you need to figure out what process is going to lead you um, to sticking with it, um, because otherwise you're not, it's not going to work. And you should stay out of micro caps. Um, but if you can stomach that and learn to train yourself, that's the key to success, I think. You know, that's I usually ask advice for new microcap investors, and I think that's great advice right there. Be ready for the wild ride, be disciplined, and then you're ready to rock. So with that, where can my audience go and find more information about you and Verdad Advisors? Uh, verdadcap.com or on my Twitter, which is at verdadcap, and then sign up for my weekly research. It's free and hopefully good. Dan, you're the man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on and send me a note when it comes online. Will do. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Dan, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stockingsdown.com, and the official microcap news source and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>